If you're following in your Bibles, this morning we are uh, continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. You're going to notice that uh, from where we left off last Sunday to where we're picking up this Sunday, we're skipping three very significant stories. And the reason we're doing that is because there are three scriptures that we just uh, preached from during the uh, Advent season. Uh, but I just want to give you just the real quick flyover of what it is that, that we're skipping So remember last week we left off where Jesus was ministering in Capernaum and there were so many people and early in the morning he got up and went to a solitary place. He started praying. The disciples came and found him. They said, what are you doing? Everybody's looking for you. And he said, it's time to move on. It's time to leave Capernaum and go somewhere else. And so if we were to continue reading, what we'd read next is the story of the leper. They were leaving Capernaum, and at some point, a leper came and approached Jesus and said, if you're willing, you can heal me. You can make me clean. And Jesus, of course, said, I'm willing. And he reached out and touched him and healed him and sent him away. And he gave him the instructions, don't tell anyone about this. Just go to the the priest. But the man went away and told everyone. And so ministry began to become difficult for Jesus because he had this paparazzi-like crowd that followed him everywhere. And then the next story in Mark is they returned to Capernaum. And remember all of those people that didn't get their healing because Jesus had left? Well, I think they've all gathered. They hear Jesus is back, and they're all crowded around the house where Jesus is staying. Once again, he's healing people. There's a man who's paralyzed. And he has some really good friends, and they're so desperate to get this man to Jesus, but they can't get through the crowd, and so they go up on top of the roof, they make a hole in the thatch roof, they lower this man before Jesus, and Jesus does something very shocking. He says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And those words are like an electric shock to the religious leaders and to the Pharisees who are, who are observing this. Because when they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, immediately what they hear is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And the religious leaders are absolutely correct. Only God can forgive sins. This is our human predicament. Every one of us stands before God guilty because we have sinned in some way in what we've done or what we've left undone. And only God can forgive our sins. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't clean ourselves. We can't absolve our our sins, nor can anyone else. Your mom and your dad cannot forgive your sins for you. Your, Your children, your pastor, your elder, your priest, your pope, whoever it is, nobody can forgive your sins except for God alone. And so they said blasphemy because they understood what Jesus was saying. He was saying, I'm God. And they were entirely correct. It would have been blasphemy if he wasn't God. And so from there, we take uh, the, the next scene is Jesus traveling with his disciples, and they pass by a tax collector's booth. And they look inside. Jesus looks in and sees Levi, the tax collector, and says to Levi the exact same thing that he had said to Peter and Andrew, James and John. He says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. And the Levi got up from his tax collector's booth, went out and followed Jesus and became one of his disciples. 
So those are the three stories, three great stories that we're skipping. We're going to pick it up this morning at Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's Word. Father God, we invite you to send your Holy Spirit upon us right now, that your inspired Word would penetrate our hearts and our minds and not return to you void, but that it would accomplish the work that you've intended for it to do today. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 2, and we're picking it up at verse 18. Now John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. So I want to review two quick incidences. Uh, Right before, when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, and he did, that evening they went to Matthew's house. And they had a a feast, and and Matthew had invited all of his tax-collecting friends and sinners And there were Pharisees who observed this happening, and they asked the disciples, how is it possible that your teacher, your rabbi, eats and drinks with sinners, with tax collectors? Now, in this scene, they are asking Jesus about the disciples' behavior. How is it, Jesus, that your disciples don't fast like John the Baptist's disciples and like the the disciples of the Pharisees. It seems like Jesus' behavior and the behavior of his disciples is throwing a lot of people into confusion and frustration and anger. And he's starting to receive a lot of criticism because he's doing things and they're doing things differently than what ought be done. And so in story after story after story in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see him under constant attack. It's like the Pharisees are just always watching with this eagle eye, looking for him to do something wrong so that they can criticize him. Religious people judging and accusing other religious people. To put it in our context, God-loving Christ-loving people judging other God-loving, Christ-loving people. Does this still happen today? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And, and while I really dislike when I see the accusatory spirit in someone, what I've recognized this week as I've reflected on it is that it lives in me. They say that thing that you most despise in other people is probably the thing that lives in you. Well, I've I've noticed that in me. Now, let me say this. Should we 
be sure to take a stand on what is, what is truth and expose false teaching and heresy? Yes. Like truth, truth matters. But it's another thing to constantly sit in judgment and nitpick and critique other Christians and other churches on things that are, are very much secondary, if not even superficial. I wonder, I, I'm just wondering about this, and I invite you to wonder with me. I wonder if the greatest persecution of the church right now in our country is not from outside the church, but from within the church. It's what we might call friendly fire. Like Christians constantly accusing other Christians, churches accusing and criticizing other churches. It's as if we've forgotten who our enemy really is, and we've been thrown into this state of confusion, attacking one another instead of taking our stand against the evil one. Why do we do it? Why is that spirit so alive in the church? I think it's because of the same reason that the Pharisees did it. When people, when Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, and when churches don't meet our expectations as to, to what we think Christians ought to do and churches ought to do and ought not do, we're quick to criticize. I also wonder this, if Jesus were ministering among us today, like let's just say, poof, here's Jesus and, and he's ministering in Fulton and Crossview Church, would we find some reason to sit in judgment on him? Like, Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Uh, Jesus, I, I don't think that that's a really good idea. So on this particular occasion, Jesus is being asked why his disciples aren't acting like other disciples. The question is based on the observation that these different groups of disciples, John the Baptist disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees, and Jesus' disciples, they have different habits. They have different practices. The demands of discipleship for the Pharisees and for John the Baptist, they seem to be quite a bit more rigorous, as was the custom. Both groups of those disciples had the habit of fasting, not just once a week, but twice a week. Whereas the people asking this question have observed that they haven't seen Jesus fast even once, nor his disciples. Should they have been fasting? Should Jesus and his disciples have been fasting? What did the law say? Well, the law that was given to and handed down from Moses prescribed a fast one day a year on the Day of Atonement. This was the day that the high priest would enter into the most holy place. He'd go before the, the altar with a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people. This was the day they would lay their hands on a, a scapegoat and confess the sins of the people, and the goat would be led out into the wilderness. This was the day that the people of Israel were called to, to fast. Now, did they fast other days? They did. They fasted when uh, a loved one would die as a sign of mourning uh, and lamenting and grief. Uh, they fasted as a, a sign of repentance when they're overcome by their own sin. Sometimes they would fast on the eve before a great battle or a great trial, uh, coming to God with their petitions that, that he would intervene for them on their behalf. 
So when Jesus came, he wasn't anti-fasting. Jesus wasn't opposed to fasting. In fact, if you look at his sermon in the mount, on the mount, when he taught about fasting, he actually assumed that it would be the practice of his followers. He said, when you fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, he said, don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it like the people who want to be seen. They, they make a big public display of it. Do it quietly. Make it be between you and God. There have been uh, different uh, seasons where I have tried to instill the, the practice of fasting in my own life, usually one day a week. And when I've done that, it seems to me that that one day comes around like every third day. Like, oh my gosh, it's Monday again, and I've got to fast. And I was trying to imagine, what would it be like to fast two days a week? I mean, it would seem like every other day you are, you're fasting, so these two groups of disciples, they are fasting a lot. Jesus and his disciples are not. The question is asked of Jesus about the behavior of his disciples, but really they're accusing Jesus, like, why aren't you making them do this? I mean, it must be pretty nice to be a disciple of Jesus. Like, you guys, what kind of operation are you running here anyway? Notice in Jesus' answer, he doesn't deny the value of fasting or discard this spiritual practice. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast." So Jesus compared his relationship to his disciples like that of a groom to his groomsmen on the wedding day. And he's saying it would be completely inappropriate on the wedding day for the groomsmen to show up in sackcloth and, and wearing ashes and fasting, acting like this wedding is a funeral. That would be an insult and a, an offense to the groom. They're not going to fast on the wedding day but then he said, the time's going to come. And people probably didn't pick up on this, but it's the first time that he's actually saying, I'm going to die. He's already, from the very beginning, he's already saying, the time's going to come where I'm going to be taken away from you. And on that day, they're going to fast. They're going to mourn. They're going to grieve. They're going to deny themselves food. Uh, many of us have been watching The, the Chosen uh, and this scene about Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector uh, is a, a beautiful scene where Peter can't believe it, and he objects. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? He's not worthy to be one of us. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, didn't you feel that way when I called you? And Peter said, yeah, but that's different. And then this, this beautiful line, Jesus said, uh, get used to different. Get used to different. As a rabbi, as a holy man, as a leader of disciples, as a Jew, and even as a Messiah, there were expectations that people had as to who Jesus would be, what he would do, what he wouldn't do, who he'd include, who he would exclude, what he would say, what he wouldn't say. And over and over again, Jesus broke those rules and failed to meet their expectations time after time. You see, as a holy man, you don't associate with sinners. 
you don't associate with tax collectors. Jesus called one to follow him. As a rabbi, you train your disciples to fast. If you want to have real devoted disciples, you do it twice a week. Jesus said they're purposely not going to fast, but instead they're going to feast a lot. So much so that Jesus is going to be accused of being a glutton and a, a, and a drunk. As a Jew, you don't engage with Samaritans. Jesus said, we're going to not travel around Samaria. We're going through Samaria. In fact, we're going to spend a few days in Samaria so that we can minister to the Samaritans. As a leader of disciples, you seek out the cream of the crop. Jesus called fishermen. As a leader of disciples, you invest in men. Jesus discipled women. Jesus' ministry was funded by women. As the Messiah, you don't win by dying. Jesus humbled himself, even to death on a cross. Over and over again, he failed to meet expectations. At almost every turn, what was he doing? He's introducing something new, something different. And what he was introducing didn't fit into their mental models. It didn't fit into their pigeonholed expectations of what a, a godly person should be or, or, or do. And so notice Jesus responded to his questioners with a proverb, verse 21. He said, nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One of the ways we might summarize that proverb is the way the, the chosen did. Get used to different. In and through Jesus... God was doing a new thing, a different thing. No longer would the people of God be limited to this biological heritage from Abraham. The people of God would be people of faith. We are children of Abraham by faith. Doors thrown open to Jew and Gentile. No longer would God's people be waiting the arrival of the Messiah. The Messiah had come. No longer would the blood of animals be required for the absolution of sin. For Jesus would die for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. No longer would the temple be the singular place where God dwelled, for the time was coming where God would be looking for worshipers in spirit and truth, and it doesn't matter where that place is. No longer would God's spirit dwell apart from his people. His spirit would come and dwell with people and even dwell in his people. Things were changing, and when things change, wineskins need to change. The church of every age, as you know, continues to wrestle with the continual need for new wineskins. When the people in Fulton no longer spoke Dutch as their, their first language, 
There were some people at First Reformed Church who said it's time for a new wineskin. It's time for a new church that, that worships in English. This is our story as to, to why we're, we're here. When Isaac Watts, in the early 1700s, made the case for a new hymnal, one that wasn't just restricted to the Psalms, but one that incorporated hymns that were based on Scripture, he was introducing a new wineskin, and surprise, surprise, not a lot of people were happy. Isaac Watts' own father was upset. The old hymnal was good enough for your grandfather, is good enough for me, it should be good enough for you. But fortunately, now we have songs like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross because of Isaac Watts. When Rick Warren planted a church in Southern California trying to reach unreached people in Southern California, he decided on a new wineskin of a wardrobe, uh, preaching while wearing a Hawaiian shirt, obnoxious Hawaiian shirt. And to a lot of people, it was irreverent and offensive, but God didn't seem to mind. He blessed his ministry, and thousands of people came to Christ. I could give you many more examples, but you understand. Now, here's why this is all so hard. Hard for the Pharisees in Jesus' day and hard for us today. We love our wineskins. Some people just love our wine, but I was thinking of my mom with that. Uh, we love our wineskins. And this is not just uh, the elderly love their wineskins. We all love our wineskins. We love our mental models of how things should be done because that's what has happened for us. It's what we've experienced. We elevate our wineskins to the point that a new wineskin feels like we're doing something wrong. It's not just different, it's wrong. So, as I said, this isn't just older people. When I was a youth director, uh, we inherited a building much like the bridge, and we, we transitioned it into our youth center. And in the, the, uh, the building, we called it the lighthouse, there was a chapel, and it had these old, dark, wooden pews. And, and so we'd try and do youth group in this chapel with these dark, wooden pews, and I thought it wasn't very conducive. It's not very welcoming. It's not very user-friendly. And so that summer... Uh, after a couple months, I made the decision, the pews are going. We got rid of the pews, and then the kids came back in the fall. And what I failed to take into account was how attached they had become to that space and how attached they had become to those pews. And it was mutiny. Like, we can't believe you got rid of the pews. Mark continues in his gospel with one more way that Jesus let people down, and he defied expectations. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Observing the Sabbath day, 
and keeping it holy was not some insignificant, arbitrary practice that the people of God could take or leave. This was rooted in the Ten Commandments. This was a command that God himself inscribed on stone. The fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So if Jesus really was a man of God, how could he possibly permit his disciples to desecrate the Sabbath? Well, notice again, Jesus does not deny the command to observe and keep holy the Sabbath. It is a day to be set apart. It is a day to be differentiated from the other days. It's a day marked by worship and rest. He didn't deny the Sabbath, but he reframed it. He put it in a new wineskin. God didn't give the command of honoring the Sabbath to be a burden to his people. Think about the people who first received this command. They had just been in Egypt. They had just been under the, the, the heavy hand of the Lord Pharaoh. And Pharaoh never gave them a rest. The only thing Pharaoh did is ask for more, more, more. This is where they've come from, and now they're under a new Lord. And God says, I'm going to give you a day of rest. You're going to still have to work. It's good to work. But every single week, as a gift to you, I give you this day for you to rest. What an incredible gift. The Sabbath, Jesus said, was made for man. It's God's gift to us, not man for the Sabbath. If you want to deny the Sabbath, if you don't want to observe the Sabbath, you do so at risk to yourself. It's denying a gift that God intends to give you. It's a refreshing, uplifting, rejuvenating, restoring day that is set apart from all of the others. It's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, surprisingly, the scripture didn't give a whole lot of ways about how you observe the Sabbath. You know, just a few ideas. So what the Pharisees did is they came and gave hundreds of things. They kind of filled in the command of observing, of observing the Sabbath with hundreds of commands of what you could and couldn't do. And so Jesus came and he reframed it. It's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now we're going to skip the next passage, but if we continued reading, we'd see Jesus in a synagogue and he would heal a man with a shriveled hand and he'd do it on the Sabbath. And it would be so upsetting to the Pharisees that that would be the event that would trigger them to begin to make plans to kill Jesus. I mean, talk about getting attached to your wineskins. They're so offended that they now want to kill Jesus. Why? What crime has he committed? He healed a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. So as I uh, thought about this sermon and was thinking, well, what are the applications uh, for us. Here are the applications for me. First, stop nitpicking. Like, just recognize in my own spirit how quick I am to criticize other believers who don't see things like I do, other churches who don't see things like I do. Just stop, pause. Is it really necessary? Number two, be open to examining my wineskins. I've got wineskins that I'm attached to. One of them is, is the Bible. When I say open your scriptures and you pull out your phones, you know what I think? You're doing it wrong. 
<laughs> You're doing it wrong. This is the right way to do it. It's not supposed to be on a phone. I recognize that's my wineskin. So be open to examining what are the wineskins that you've become attached to and be willing to let go of some of those things if circumstances require a new wineskin. Three, for me personally, it's having the courage to introduce new wineskins when necessary. Not prematurely, not foolishly, but when it's necessary to introduce a new wineskin, we always need to do that. And historically, this church has been a, a church that has done that. And finally, four, it's to receive the Sabbath as a gift. The gift that God has intended it to be for, for me and for us. Join me as we pray. Uh, Lord, as I share those things, I just recognize how difficult it is for us to see our own wineskins because we are so quickly to elevate it to a status of, of what's right and what's wrong, not just what I'm comfortable with or what I'm used to. So Lord, give us eyes to see. And Lord, in terms of the church, you, you prayed for the unity of the church. Lord, give us the discernment on those things where we do need to take a stand uh, on, on, on true teaching and those things where we are just um, giving into a, a spirit of accusation uh, and tearing one another down. We pray this uh, by the power of your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.